The U.S. Supreme Court has been hearing oral arguments in a number of explosive cases, including the freedom of web designers to choose what version of marriage they will adorn through their work, plus cases dealing with Joe Biden's executive order transferring student loan debt from borrowers to taxpayers and Harvard's race-based admissions policies. At the same time, Elon Musk's Twitter revelations shed light on politicians influencing social media policies. Also, we're learning the shocking backstory of the collapse of the FTX crypto exchange and peace negotiations in Ukraine are stalled. We will discuss these issues and much more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try and bring you an independent take on the issues of the day. And as always, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers. Uh, Dr. Bill Evers, welcome. Good to see you. Welcome. Just as a reminder to our friends, uh, Bill Evers, longtime uh, fixture at the Hoover Institution and then in recent years has joined us as the director of our Center on Educational Excellence here at the Independent Institute. And Bill, we are sure glad to have you. Thank you. So um, we have a lot to talk about today, and uh, hopefully our friends will follow us and uh, maybe contribute some of their own thoughts afterwards. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to mention uh, this fascinating case at the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it's called 303 Creative LLC versus Elenus, uh, in which, and tell me if I've got this right, Bill, on the basic facts, uh-huh. in, in which the state of Colorado is enforcing an anti-discrimination statute at the state level statute against uh, the creator owner of a web design company. Right. Uh, she does wedding websites, which are a big deal nowadays. She's, pro- she's doing this prospectively. She's, <coughs> she brought the suit because she wants to do this. Ah, she doesn't want to okay. be punished at the outset. Yeah, well, she's probably wise because otherwise she could really be zinged financially and in other ways. But apparently the state thinks that her business is or would be in violation of their statute because given her religious beliefs, she does not want to create uh, websites that would adorn, beautify, affirm same-sex marriage because she says that's against uh, her Christian witness. That's how she thinks of it. So the state uh, <clears throat> thinks otherwise, and the Tenth Circuit, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, apparently agrees with the uh, state of Colorado for the moment. It's gotten appealed, and the U.S. Supreme Court is taking it up. So what's the, what's the underlying issue here, do you think, Bill? Well, it's not, <clears throat> as, as the, the plaintiff has brought this, it's not really a freedom of religion issue. It's a freedom of speech issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, the woman's religious beliefs underpin what kind of speech she wants to engage in. Uh, But she's saying that this is forced speech. This is compelled Mm -hmm. speech. So her attorney, I think this is interesting, has pointed out that it's not just same-sex marriage that she would not do a thing for. If two couples that she knew of, if a couple that she knew of uh, had, uh, were married to other people and had an affair and then divorced them and decided to marry each other, <coughs> that would also be in violation of uh, her beliefs. Mm-hmm. And to force her to do a uh, graphic design web page for such a couple 
she would also feel that was equally forced speech. Mm -hmm. So this is not just a thing of having to do with homosexuals. <coughs> it has to do with her whole panoply of beliefs that she doesn't want to be forced to speak in violation of her beliefs. So, so uh, the, this, the state is portraying this, uh, you know, the newspapers are portraying gay rights versus free speech, conflict of rights, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think our view would be, I think Graham and I would share this view. Well, that, let's find out. Yeah, let's find <laughs> out, because we're not always going to agree, as I think we're going <laughs> to see today. Uh, I think we would say, you know, the woman has a right to express herself, uh, to engage in free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of whatever medium she wants to be uh, giving forth her ideas on. She should not be forced. She's not a slave. She cannot be just commandeered by the state <coughs> uh, to be a, like a puppet or robot of some bureaucrat somewhere. Uh, and, you know, so, so the, the parade of hor there's always a parade of horribles, as we're going to see, particularly in the election cases coming up in a minute here. So the parade of horribles is what the people on the anti-freedom side say. Oh, if you had freedom, such and such terrible things would happen. So in a sense, what they're saying is, well, if you give, believe in freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and it, it doesn't let you compel people to do what the state wants in its mm -hmm. pet projects, then that's going to mean all civil rights things, like ones having to do with race mm -hmm. or other topics, mm -hmm. uh, maybe disabilities, I don't know what, right. uh, would be able to be stood off by somebody saying, uh, I don't like your race I or I don't like you yeah, because you're disabled. I don't want to do so uh, websites <coughs> for disabled people. Right. Okay, I, don't, I don't even know if that's, that's a right. The, that's the alleged. I don't know if that's a right, but I'm just saying right. that's the kind of uh, thing. So the a Alleged slippery slope. Right. So the attorneys, exactly, a slippery slope. So the attorneys are trying to distinguish these different things. Uh, anyway, so that's where the case well, is. Well, so to be clear, I mean, <clears throat> this uh, woman um, who is the web designer, her situation is not, for example, uh, like a situation, let's say she owned a photocopy store and somebody brought in their flyer and wanted to photocopy it on her photocopy machine. Um, uh, that's not the kind of thing. Because this is rather quite different. This is much more analogous to uh, a portrait artist, for example, <coughs> uh, or know. some other I commissioned I artist who is asked to create a, a work of art that has a certain creativity and flair to it that she has to create. She's so not her, just reproducing. So her attorneys <coughs> say that her company will, you know, she's basically a customized place. But she might have on sale off-the-shelf web design software. So you could create your own. It's yeah. standardized. Mm -hmm. And the attorneys are saying, well, that's not something that's covered by this. Okay, right. We're really only talking about her customized stuff. Right, her creative input. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <clears throat> so um, what's intriguing about this is that apparently the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal accepted the argument <clears throat> on one level 
that what she's doing really is pure speech. Uh, it is expression. But right. because of the nature of her work, she has a monopoly position. Uh, monopoly position, of course, sounds implausible, but what they mean is not that she's the only wedding web designer that exists, but rather she's the only one who has her particular set of aesthetic skills to be a web designer. And so she's a monopoly of one, yeah. but given the fact that she's a monopoly, because nobody else has her particular creative bent, so she's a monopoly of one, and therefore she can't use her monopoly power to refuse customers. That's, that's like saying Bob Hope is the only Bob Hope. That's exactly Therefore, what it's like saying. Therefore, he can't negotiate, uh, you know, he has to have 85 clones that are just as good. <laughs> right. If he's going to fairly uh, negotiate with some vendor or person who wants to hire right. him or something like that. Or in the, marital, in the marital world, in the courtship world, well, there's only, you know, whoever... I'm married to whoever you're married to, Graham, is only that one person. That person has some horrifying monopoly on being <laughs> right. themselves. Right. And therefore, they shouldn't be allowed to be themselves. So I think that's crazy. There are, not, not only did we take a long digression to get into the whole theory of monopoly and what... Well, the courts themselves have taken that yes. digression. <laughs> yes, they have. So I, I think, it, in a sense exposes the poor arguments there are in the monopoly field. Well, and there are many, many web designers. And you don't oh, have to have a them, web yeah. designer who's next door to you. You can have a web designer anywhere in, in the Pakistan, world. You know? Yeah, right. exactly. Right. So. Now, I'm not, I'm not um, uh, really thinking about uh, the success of that argument. I don't think the monopoly argument is going to succeed with the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> that's a simple way for them to deal with it. They could say that you know, that's the primary argument, it's invalid. <clears throat> but they could go elsewhere. The Supreme Court has been known to develop its own rationale to right. sustain legislation or other action. Uh, you know, I, in think, the I think commentators who have seen the oral argument, heard the oral <clears throat> argument, uh, think that the court is going to decide for the plaintiff and that she will end up with her freedom. Yeah, I think, I think, I think some of the too. other courses, court cases are more problematic and uncertain as the. Uh, so maybe we should go to the next of the well, fascinating we will in a, okay, we will in a minute. We will in a minute, but I just wanted to draw uh, an interesting comparison that I've seen okay. in various analyses. Um, if you go back to 1990, to the course, uh, the case Oregon versus Smith, which that okay. was the one where the state of Oregon wouldn't let its employees use uh, peyote. Uh, and uh, the employee who was a member of an Indian tribe that used peyote traditionally complained about it. The Supreme Court actually sustained state power in that case, including as articulated by Justice Scalia, the late Antonin Scalia, who said that since this is a neutral law of general applicability, that a religious exemption was not uh, appropriate to the state uh, rule against the use of peyote by its employees. Now, it's different and similar to this case, but what strikes me is that uh, the Supreme Court could use, if they wanted to really narrow the holding, they could say it was only a religious liberty exemption, not a freedom of express expression or speech exemption. They could go to the religion exemption, but if they but, go there... But, but the briefs <coughs> filed by the plaintiff are on the speech side. I think, you know, the peyote thing is very bizarre in my opinion. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I believe during <laughs> Prohibition, 
Christian churches could serve wine at communion, even though wine right. was illegal. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there were specific vineyards that were exempt from you know being torn up by <laughs> right anti by Elliot Ness and his friends uh, that that were supplying churches for communion. So you know you know it's 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 not. I don't want to make it sound too facile. You don't want a church of cannibalism saying, "Okay, right. we're <laughs> going to go out and kill people because that's our religion." Uh, so we have to be careful. Yeah, I, I it think, can't I be think just a anything. lot of it has to be considering <clears throat> things that are crimes per se versus state-created crimes that are kind right. of regulatory of lifestyle. Right. And if those are wrapped up in religion, I think uh, it's understandable that the state would exempt them and the courts would exempt them. I think that... Uh, it does make a difference, when, especially when you deal with the argument about the slippery slope, right. uh, the domino effect or whatever, the hor yeah. parade of horribles. It really ultimately, uh, I think it does come down to um, the bearing of one of the key findings in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which right. was that the state of Colorado, same state, could not vilify the beliefs of the cake baker in that case, who did right. not believe that marriage could be could even exist between a, uh, two persons the thing, of the same the thing sex. That, <clears throat> the thing that upset the state's case was that investigatory work showed that the regulatory body that was behind the supervision of the cake maker had a strong uh, bias against he did. the beliefs. And he expressed of, it, right? Yeah. So I'm, what I'm I don't saying, think we though, have that as part. I don't think in this no. case we have uh, that in the record somewhere. No, we certainly don't. But what I'm saying is that it's in the background of the situation as the court deals with this because notwithstanding the claim that there are analogous cases that could constitute a slippery slope, in fact, disagreement about the nature of marriage is really not the same thing as a person who is born black or white or male or female, et cetera. Where we can't, the court really does not want to go to the place where it equates disagreement about the nature of marriage with race bigotry. Uh, it, it doesn't. It, 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 it doesn't, doesn't want to go there. <clears throat> but 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 the the critics of the plaintiff want to go there. <laughs> they do indeed. They do indeed. So okay. let's we'll find proceed. out in June. We'll yeah. find out in June. Okay. I think they can. Case. I think they. I think they can word it so they salvage her rights and freedom right. of speech, and they don't interfere with state regulation of bigotry. Right. Uh, problematic as that also can be. So I predict six three in her favor, but we'll see. We'll see. I think that's a so, pretty good prediction. Okay, so here's another case uh, the court uh, is dealing with called Moore versus Harper. And this has uh, to do with the creation of, uh, well, ultimately presidential electors <clears throat> and, the and the existence of districting and so forth. Um, the uh, state of North Carolina uh, was beaten back in its, in its legislature's attempt to uh, be exempt from its own state's Supreme Court review because the argument goes that in Article One of the U.S. Constitution, I have my U.S. Constitution here, uh, which I'll just briefly read. Uh, it says, Article One, Section 4, the times, manners, and places of holding elections for senators and representatives shall pre be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. 
And then again in Article 2 about the presidency, it says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors, et cetera, for president. And so the argument's now being made uh, that where states The argument court, is being made that we should take that at its word. That's the argument being made, but the, the implication of that argument is that uh, when a state legislature makes a determination about election matters such as right. this, that it should not be subject to the review, judicial review, by its own Supreme Court under its own state constitution, but instead okay. should be a free agent due to the U.S. Constitution superseding and preempting the state constitution yeah, and the, the U.S. Constitution does, <clears throat> on matters that are explicitly laid out, preempt them. <clears throat> I, I think, by the way, it's not just New York, it's not just North Carolina. New York had a case like this. So mm -hmm. the Democrats gerrymandered the seats in the New York state legislature, and uh, Republicans and good government types said this is terrible gerrymander. They had to redistrict. The redistrict <laughs> allowed the Republicans to gain four seats that they would never have gotten. Otherwise, uh, in California, we actually have an interesting situation. Our districts are set by an independent districting board. If the Democratic legislature were to uh, design the districts, I can tell you that <laughs> at least four Republican seats would be lost in California also. So <coughs> this is a very you know big deal for politicians. The public can't really fathom what's going on here the real the real problem is the following we saw okay. it in the we saw it in the COVID case so state supreme courts and state attorneys general and governors were suddenly setting the rules for elections saying oh this is an emergency we got medical because problems. yeah emergency declarations yeah, mm -hmm. right, so we're going <laughs> to do something different and they didn't have the authorization of the state legislature well, except and they had no, prior general authorization for emergency situations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're being very nice about it. I don't. Th I think they didn't really even. Anyway, so that is. So then, in the case of North Carolina and other other cases, they they don't say. Uh, they say free speech is being impinged, and what you know they you know, no no they're they're the. The state Supreme Courts are saying that they can overthrow the decisions of the district, li the lines for <laughs> voting uh, Drawn on by the grounds. And the other thing, <clears throat> they can just take from wherever they want to, to, I mean, obviously they're not doing, you know, patents and copyrights or something like that, but they are, right, they right. are drawing mm -hmm. from other things in the Bill of Rights to uh, uh, take take the district lines apart. So well, I, I think I think it was pretty clear, and the Constitution can be amended, that the state legislatures, or at least the state lawmaking process, if you want to be a little more latitudinarian mm -hmm. and lax <clears throat> about it. So maybe in a state that has referendum and plebiscite and so forth, they could be doing something that way. But the point is, it needs to be part of the state legislative process and not a The courts are not supposed to design the election process. So what's weird about this though, Bill, 
from a political angle is that typically you've got Republicans who are vindicators of states' rights, and Democrats typically want the federal government to have more you know, pre prevailing power. But in this case, the argument by the Republican side, typically Republican at least, is that the federal constitution uh, preempts what would otherwise be the normal process of a state's self-government with respect to the designing of election laws and districts, that the state should not allow, should, it, the states are not allowed to have their own normal legislative and judicial review processes occur, but instead the state legislatures now must be uh, entirely free from their own state constitutions due to the federal constitution. So we have a suppression of state autonomy in the name of a federal no, I, don't, I wouldn't look at it this way. I, I, you wouldn't, I, okay. I, no, but I, I love your sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> I think what the, the way to probably look at it is something like this. Republicans and conservatives and libertarians, more or less, are rule-oriented. Yes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so here is a rule, and it's pretty clear-cut. And yes, maybe Republicans see advantage in the fact that a lot of the judiciaries are packed with people that they don't think have even common sense or an ability to read what's right in front of them. They don't like black letter law. They want to get into the perumbras and the penumbras, right. you know, all that stuff. So right. I think that's really, I don't, I don't think it's that <clears throat> Republicans or conservatives or libertarians are, uh, per se, states' rights. I mean, libertarians are for liberty, and then they're right. trying to construct things consistent with liberty. But constitutional conservatives are usually in favor of greater semi-autonomy for the well, states. I just think, I just think, you know, it's like saying, oh, the president is supposed to be so many years old, right? But the state of North Carolina wants to have its electors pledge to somebody who's 20 years old for president. Shouldn't we let the states decide what who their electors can cast votes for, and if they want to do something, it's old-fashioned to say that you can't be 20 years old and elected president. Uh, of the United right, States. right. And that, obviously, I'm that's sorry. a bad argument. It says <laughs> it says in the Constitution that you have to be 35 or whatever it is. I believe that's what it is, and so, you know, that's it's straightforward. Well, but but listen, here, here's another angle on this bill. Um, I, okay. I, I, I'll let it drop in a minute, but one one more t one more go. Um, so. If you look at the enumeration of powers All right. in the federal constitution, exactly. what we're talking about here is that the federal constitution says that the state legislatures have this power. Right. And they should exercise it. But of course, elsewhere, let's say in Article One, Section 8, it says Congress shall have power to, and then it lays out all these different things that Congress shall have power to do. So. In Article One, it lays out all the things that Congress shall have power to do. But the fact that the federal constitution in Article One, Section Eight, enumerates these powers of Congress doesn't exempt Congress from judicial review. It doesn't eliminate the fact that the president has to sign the, the bills uh, for the thing to pa pass into law, et cetera. So why should it be different with the state legislatures? Why should they and they alone, unlike the federal Congress, have an enumerated power that's completely exempt from their own state judicial review processes. That's my argument. 
Ah. Can you, should, can, can you undo me? <laughs> I should introduce you to L. Brent Bozell Sr., <laughs> who thought the courts had slightly run away with their review powers. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I think this is too complicated to get okay. into, but I take it that you have a good point. <laughs> okay, let's talk about another issue uh, before the court, which is apparently Supreme Court has agreed that it will hear the case uh, on whether or not President Biden had the power as president by right. declaring a national health emergency to uh, forgive, what is it, $400 billion worth of student debt. Um, right. Supreme Court has not yet ruled on it, and right. apparently they will. Um, but interestingly, the court could have uh, uh, the court could have allowed the debt forgiveness process to continue right. while they but heard the isn't. case, but they didn't. But they and didn't. That's, yeah. a, uh, that's a sign. That's a big sign. That's a sign that they're not going to approve it. Now, <clears throat> the interesting problem here is the issue of standing. Right. So in order for a case to come to the Supreme Court, to come into the court, there has to be somebody who's injured or <clears throat> is, is adversely affected and so forth. So, so the, you hear these people getting, and it, it can't just be I'm a taxpayer and I'm, right. they, they, mm -hmm. they say that's too diluted. Mm -hmm. So you have to be somehow somebody who's adversely affected by this in order mm -hmm. to appealed you know to the courts for a remedy so let's say you have some kind of state <coughs> plan and it's subsidized by the feds but the form the new formula to affects that state scholarship plan or something like that that kind of thing has brought states attorney generals into this case right and so anyway there are two cases that have been proceeding along uh, what uh, it looks again like, uh, just from these indications, sort of straws in the wind, like them not allowing an injunction to, that would keep it going while the courts are deliberating, that the majority of the court does not think that the Biden people. I mean, this would be amazing if they could buy executive action that spend. Uh, you know, all four hundred billion dollars yeah, by executive billion action, dollars, right? <clears throat> it, it's so really uh, that would be essentially the end of our semi-constitutional republic. <laughs> it would, because it would mean that all you'd have to do is declare yeah. an emergency, and 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 clearly, <laughs> anyway, the emergency is over. And clearly, well, President Biden said the pandemic is over. So, but the pandemic yeah. is not over for purposes of debt forgiveness, right? And so it's confusing. Which is it? Well, I mean, <laughs> the pandemic is not over. We're probably going to have some version of it for the rest of our lives or right. the rest of everybody's mm -hmm. lives. It's going to presumably attenuate in severity right. and but probably gain in contagiousness. I mean, you can't say, for example, that if there are viruses around, you can't have constitutional government anymore. Yeah. That's, that's not a good argument. That's really the reductio <laughs> ad absurdum of this whole right. case. And, I mean, it's also very weird. This was a statute that was intended to help out military people who were having <laughs> problems with mortgages and things like that. They were, you know, and it was extended into this COVID situation. 
I don't think unreasonably. And then mm -hmm. now it's just like growing like topsy. It's going to take, it potentially can take over the entire budgeting process of the United right. States. So right. I think, yeah. the, I think assuming, it, I mean, it looks like the standing thing will be all right. Assuming the standing thing is agreed to by the court, it looks like they will say that this is a step too far on the part of the They, they might well. I mean, you know, it does have something in common with something that President Trump did. And I was reminded of this uh, by Ilya Soman on the Volokh conspiracy, pointed out uh, that President Trump used the emergency powers to divert lots of military funds to build a to border To the wall. building the wall. It, it's exactly right. the same thing. It's the, and it's he, the same he, thing. He should not have done that either. Yeah, I totally let agree. It, let it be fully acknowledged that we are have no fear in criticizing Republicans as well as <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Tr President okay. Trump was wrong when he did that. Right. But, you know, the thing is that uh, there are millions of students who have been notified of the, you know, debt forgiveness and who have been actually gone through the process, millions of them, to inscribe themselves in the debt forgiveness the portal through the federal government's yeah. website thing. And so it's possible the court could say, well, this was an improper use of executive emergency powers, but since uh, citizens innocently have been given the expectation, uh, we have to let that particular thing proceed, but this must never happen again. Could that be done by the court? I don't think so. We're not entitled to our expectations. Many people right. thought FTX was going to keep going up, up, up. You know, many people thought IBM was going right. to, or General Motors, or General Electric, or Exxon, you, or whatever. We're going to constantly be doing great. Right. Many people thought, you know, the United States could never be defeated in a war. Well, I think objectively we lost the Vietnam War. Yeah, so, well, maybe uh, the Afghan. Yeah, or the Afghan war. So mm -hmm. the, the point is, you're not, you can't really be morally entitled to your expectations. Now, that doesn't mean politicians can't try and expand right. people's expectations, right. trade on people's expectations, right. whip up people based yeah. on their expectations. And the Supreme Court, although it's supposed to be part of the rule of law, might wrongly defer to expectations but I, I can't really see I don't think that they, they could say I mean these people all signed agreements that they were going to pay this money back why don't we have that be the expectation <laughs> right but you've got to admit the politics of this are totally brilliant because even if the That's Supreme right. Court strikes either, it down right. it's either the Republican governors that have done this to you or the Republican yeah. attorney generals or the Republican right. members of the Supreme Court. Millions of, of college we, students. We want to give you good stuff, we Democrats. Or the we Democrats will. tried to give us this debt yeah. forgiveness, but the darn Republicans stood in the way and are so stingy. Yeah. So yeah. even if the thing goes down in flames at the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a huge win politically because millions of college students will remember who blocked their loan forgiveness. Well, you can even put it another way. The Democrats were desperate to get... Uh, young people to vote in the midterms. So they announced this forgiveness plan during the run-up to the midterms. Right. No, close enough to the midterms that the courts right. could not rule decisively that this was unconstitutional right. mm -hmm. until afterwards. So they got the benefit of the youth vote 
assuming that the youth boat can be bought and sold this way. I, d I do think it's not too difficult to explain to somebody we don't really have a political system. They don't have to be super well educated to explain to them we don't really have a political system where whatever the king or the president wants is what happens. Right. Certainly when it comes to hundreds of billions of dollars. And right. so I think that's kind you know, of obvious. People should I think get people that. can understand that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so. They might still, you know, wish that they had a cornucopia of benefits poured down on them, but I think you right. can still fairly easily it's not like trying to explain the Federal Reserve System. To <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's to explain really hard. what's wrong here. Right. <laughs> okay. Since, since you're an education expert, do you want to comment on this one last thing that was sure. on the court's docket regarding the Harvard case and affirmative ah. action? I mean, is Harvard as bad as it seems? It really it looks like from all the stuff I've read about the case that Harvard really sets out deliberately to minimize the number of Asians and that yeah. many Asian American applicants try their level best to make themselves seem less Asian so they can get into Harvard. This is rank racial sorting, or am I missing something? Well, I think it's clear from <clears throat> what came out in the course of this that, you know, if you're Asian American, you don't put down that you're good at chess or that you've learned Mandarin or you born into a family where you know Mandarin or even check what race you are. Because it'll count against you. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I think that's an ugly situation. Now, there's a broader problem, which is, okay, we can easily see for University of North Carolina, which is a state university, that they shouldn't be engaged in racial sorting like this. However, it's possible that a private university could do strange things. Like it could be a brethren religious group right. university and they might give preference to brethren or right. it could be a Catholic university. But that would be might... sort of straightforward okay. and honest. Okay, okay, <clears throat> I know they're being tricky and all that about this. But some people would say that, uh, you know, ad admissions is a very strange process. Essentially, these universities have a very scarce commodity, their college experience and their diploma, and the various signals and experiences that this rewards. And they control the border of going on campus and getting this experience and this certificate. So perhaps if they want to put great football quarterbacks in their classes, okay, maybe they should have a right to do that. And, uh, and so some of this might fall under that. So it's interesting to see Richard Epstein, a famous legal scholar and classical liberal. So when this case first started coming out, he was sort of arguing that what I just said, that the universities, the private universities have a right to control their boundaries and who's in the classroom, mm -hmm. who, who their professors are encountering and so forth. And as time has gone on, and as the egregiousness of what Harvard mm -hmm. has been doing, he has kind of flipped to saying this is really an equal protection right, thing. Right, isn't that fascinating? These universities have tons of public money in them, even when they're right. private. And it's outrageous for the level of this 
racial attentiveness and sensibility. That so Epstein's play. view has, has changed. I think it has. I, I may have misread him, but <laughs> my, my recollection is pretty firm. I didn't double check it before we did this. But I'm quite sure I recommend him being at the beginning on one side and having evolved over time. Well, you know, the millions of dollars that are received by these private universities from the federal treasury, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that there's a bright line distinguishing public from private, except for the you know, a small handful of schools, colleges, which right. don't take federal money. I can see their point. But all the right. rest, including Harvard, and millions of dollars, well, how private are they? <clears throat> it's a complicated problem. So, yes, there's a handful like Hillsdale and Grove City that don't take any federal money, meaning they don't even take federal Not even student scholarship loan. money. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe there's a difference between Harvard and Swarthmore. You know, well, Swarthmore mm. probably not having very much research money, right? whereas Stanford or Harvard, you know, they'd have to charge twice as much tuition and right. various things uh, in order to support the same kind of research without mm -hmm. the federal money. So, so anyway, it's complicated. I think we've laid it out. <laughs> we've laid it out. So but I think, but I think Harvard and, U and University of North Carolina are going to lose because the, yeah, the, I think so the, too. Mm -hmm. the, the discovery has been of such. So, so one of the th so you know we're talking about chess and all this stuff. One of the ways they do this is they, you know, they have these academic ratings of people based on uh, standardized test scores and grade point averages and things like that, and then they have another category. They have several, they have other multiple categories, but another big category is kind of a personality thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that all Asians, according to these admissions officers, are uh, selfish and oh, uh, not gregarious and right. don't don't want to improve the world. They just care about themselves and so forth. They're characterologically they're not deficient. Well, they're not, they're not well-rounded and so forth. Good grief. So it's interesting because the whole well-rounded thing came, at, which is certainly around when I was applying to college many Me centuries too. ago, uh, was devised as a way to block Jews from getting mm -hmm. in in large numbers into the Ivy League. Mm -hmm. So they would evaluate the Jews as being too studious and not well-rounded enough, not clubbable, right. whatever. Right, right. So we're seeing a somewhat <laughs> different version of that with the Asians. So you know what's interesting, Bill? Um, th this question of whether these private universities like Harvard, whether they are in fact private enough to right. be able to discriminate with glee, yeah. um, is parallel to the question of the big social media companies. So people point out that, yeah, well, Twitter and Facebook, they're private companies. And so they, if they want to suppress certain news stories and favor others to influence the political world, they are private actors and they should be free uh, to do whatever they want to do. But with Elon Musk's accession to the top of Twitter and his big document dump, um, it's really shed light on the inner activities of a place like Twitter Yes. Uh, to reveal that maybe not only do they get lots of money from the federal government, but even aside from that, they have a lot of receptivity, shall we say, to influence and suggestion and pressure from politicians in their decision making, making them look a lot less like simply private speech actors and much more like semi-agents of government or political parties. So what do you think about this document dump from... Elon Musk. 
Well, first of all, it's fascinating. Uh, it's just really interesting. Uh, it's, it, it, you laid it out quite well. I, I think my inclination had been, and not everyone at Independent at various times had agreed with this, but I thought, by and large, they were private platforms, and the people who were posting their own material on these platforms were something that these platform editors could edit or moderate or something like that, mm -hmm. but they weren't taking, they weren't, they were just doing that as part of their public service and no one had a right to be on there and the government really shouldn't be interfering with it because it was. Uh, that was a nice clean argument. Right, now of course, even at that time, I knew that some of these companies had contracts with the Defense Department and other things that clouded this. Right. But we found out, exactly as you've said, that the <coughs> FBI was holding meetings with at least uh, Facebook and Twitter weekly in mm -hmm. a run-up to the last election that they were, uh, by that, the last presidential election, yeah, that they were, <clears throat> that they were uh, telling, so, so it's even more strange. So the FBI received the Hunter laptop several, like 2019, okay? Right. So Which everyone across it. the spectrum now has admitted really is Hunter's right. laptop. But they <laughs> had, they had it. Okay, and it was in the hands of this guy, Timothy Tybalt, who was later fired by the FBI for being too fanatically pro-Biden and pro-democratic. But right. anyway, so he had it, and he basically, apparent, we don't, we don't know exactly what he did, but he <clears> either <throat> sidelined it, put it in away in some box somewhere, or he looked into it and he found out that this is something that <laughs> needs to never really be paid attention to <clears> for <throat> reasons of what is in it. So... They also were monitoring Bobolinsky, a former partner of the Bidens, and they were monitoring Rudy Giuliani. So they were all going back and forth about the Post, this New York Post, long time, fifth biggest newspaper in the United States. We're gonna do a detailed story on the contents of this. And so then they proceed to give these cautionary warnings. There's about to be a Russian hacked dump of false or illegal information, mm -hmm. be on the <coughs> alert, et cetera, et cetera. So as Andrew McCarthy, who's a very good journalist on legal matters. He's anatomized, federal, anatomized this brilliantly. Right, federal <laughs> prosecutor. So he says, look, you're not going to find a smoking gun. You're not going to find, well, we're not completely sure. There may have been some smoking guns that James Baker edited and threw away before he left Twitter. But anyway, we'll get to that in one second. But McCarthy says, you're not going to see a smoking gun. These are all sophisticated players. They know if they say, you know, we're forbidding you to post anything having to do with Hunter Biden, they'll get in a lot of trouble. So they do it with a wink and a nod. They do it with a caution is warrant, warranted, is right. the phrase they actually mm -hmm, use. Mm -hmm. So they had these regular meetings and, you know, they signaled to these people, 
it's a threat. It's intimidation. It's a pressure that they're putting on these media. You're going to be well, in big trouble if you right. push this. Now, Mark Zuckerberg it. even admitted in his conversation yeah. with Joe Rogan that while the laptop, the Hunter Biden's laptop, was not explicitly mentioned, he right. understood the caution to apply to it. And, and the <clears throat> main caution comes, and then, like, the next day, uh, they get the this, this stories coming out. So it's not the next day, but it's right afterwards. Right. So uh, anyway, I think it's clear that the FBI seriously overstepped its bounds, and it kind of turned into commandeering these platforms, and then we now have a bad situation. But the, the good news is private enterprise allowed mm -hmm. Twitter That's right. to be purchased by somebody right. who didn't agree with this. That's right. This is making the pro-control establishment go apoplectic. Oh, it drives them nuts. And they say, oh, hate <laughs> is going everywhere. There's different measures of that. There's measures that say, no, it's actually better now on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, they say the bot numbers, so these are robotic posters, reposters, that that's gone way down. There's a, there's a bunch of measures that indicate Twitter, Twitter is actually a better place, but, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder to some extent, so some mm -hmm. people find it horrible. And, uh, but I think it's good that private enterprise showed that uh, an alternative could come into existence and will now compete with, in its own, in their own ways with Google and particularly Facebook, right? Uh, to, you know, but then there's also things like Truth Social and Reddit right, and all these other things out there, Rumble <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it's more competitive than people realize and Musk showed that it's really quite competitive. Now, some people think that, well, what we're arguing about here is whether it was appropriate to suppress sexy pictures from Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, I, I actually, I actually was watching. I know this might frighten some of our viewers here, but I was watching MSNBC, and Lawrence O'Donnell argued that the main point of tr of Twitter's activity was to suppress pictures of Hunter Biden in the nude, and then everything else was totally ancillary. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's great that there were those pictures and whatever, but I don't think that's the reason that people are concerned about this. Right, and and by <laughs> the way, I don't think Twitter under Elon Musk is going to be presenting full frontal pictures of no, please of don't Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah, please don't spare us. Actually, the interesting thing is there are tens of thousands of child pornography postings on uh, Jack Dorsey era Twitter. Oof. And uh, Elon Musk is scrubbing those. So he's well, systematically good. reducing that. But so the real issue was the other stuff. Gonna, it's, it's, not gonna, it's not that he's not going to moderate. He's just, right. he's he says going he will. to allow, he says he's going to moderate. But, but in general, the kind of controversial <laughs> speech and topics, he's going to be much more uh, allowing of it. And it was the other stuff, the stuff that suggests right that President Biden was, and the whole Biden family was involved in a vast influence peddling business. And maybe substantial amounts of money was going even to the president himself, certainly to his brother, certainly right. to his Meetings son. were actually held meetings, that Joe Biden yes. said never happened. 
Yes. Th these are the reasons why the contents of the laptop were and, really and provocative. Also, <clears throat> and it's also the reason why there are several opinion polls, and it's, it's so counterfactual, it's really hard to say what weight to put on it, but there are a number of things that say up to 9% of the voters would have switched. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, in the, it, it, meant that it would have meant that in the swing states, uh, right. Trump would have won. Now, right. You know, yeah, I mean, if, if so, that just shows you the power of this kind right. of content control. I and, mean, and, and we again, can say a lot of things. Maybe, maybe <laughs> the Trump organization's tax problems coming out before the election yeah, might have switched. We don't too. really know. We you don't know. know. The elections. <clears throat> anyway. It's and there was evidence that the Trump uh, people sometimes asked for unfavorable things to be taken down. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was but much less. They they, <laughs> they, the thing is, because of the politics of the staff of Twitter, right. overwhelmingly. So, so Elon Musk posted, he said, why am I not getting requests from conservatives to right. restore <clears throat> things or, you know, <clears throat> Uh, no, why, I said it completely wrong. Why am I not getting requests from liberals and progressives to restore our group or our uh, status on Twitter? Because, because they weren't Because blocked. they weren't cut off. That's they right. weren't canceled. <laughs> it right. was only the conservatives and libertarians and other. And you know, the, this whole thing that's been revealed now with uh, Elon Musk's revelation of the Twitter background, it actually sheds really important light on a major confusion, I think, in American politics today, which is, you know, was the 2020 election stolen or not stolen? So the stuff we're talking about now has nothing to do with some legitimate votes not being counted um, right. or other, you know, legitimate, uh, illegitimate votes being counted. It has nothing to do with vote counting. <clears throat> right. It has entirely to do with the information environment around the election, which right. was manipulated on it purpose was. by it political was. actors, including governmental actors, through social media. Now, that's not the same thing as saying fraudulent voting. There has nothing to do that's with right. fraudulent voting, but it has a lot to do with the environment which is, which is a very different issue. Sometimes people say, oh, the election was stolen. Well, apparently not. But actually, right. there is something to be said about the distortions of the information. Well, let's, let's put, I, would, I would put it, without disagreeing with you, I would say, if it, if it were stolen, we really wouldn't know. Because, you know, the ballots are cast. So let's say... <laughs> 11 dead people or former inhabitants of an apartment house vote. Okay, they voted. It was illegal because they're not living there and they maybe right. voted from another place or they're dead. Now, okay, the votes are in. So now how are you, you going to tell? We don't and know how, how they voted. going to tell which way they were going to vote. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. The part, of, part of the problem with journalists saying, I mean, I, they have a basis for saying this, but for the saying, oh, there's no proven cases of elect major election fraud. Well, you know, that's because you can't find them. It's not really feasible. And now, we did, have a, we did have an interesting case in, uh, I want to say, in Florida or North Carolina. Anyway, there was this guy. Yeah, it's in North Carolina. He's running for the state lower house. And uh, he's a, f a felon, so he's on probation from a felon. He's, he stole $35,000 or something. 
embezzlement. So he's been running for state assembly, and uh, he's strongly again, you know, he strongly makes the case that uh, 2020, 2022 elections are stolen. And all, but he's not in that state. He's not supposed to vote. Felons are not supposed to vote. Mm -hmm. He's voted the last nine elections. Mm. So wow. <laughs> this is a humorous sidelight to this whole topic. Right. And I, but I would say that uh, nothing that was revealed through the latest Twitter revelations right. uh, could in any way be used to justify, as one recent presidential candidate has alleged, that since we find irregularities, we should terminate parts of the Constitution, as one presidential candidate really so, said. So, uh, none so, of it justifies that. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's certainly a kind of common sense way to understand what he said. There are people who say that he said the fraud allows for, empowers violating the Constitution, violating the laws, whatever. He, he oh, worded it in that's some a very different meaning then, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I know, but he worded it in a very half-assed way. And let's say he worded, let's say he meant the, the way you took it laid it out yeah uh he says a lot of things he doesn't necessarily follow <coughs> through on all his things and the people around him don't necessarily go along with them either so you know like so you can have a king who says who will rid me of this meddlesome man referring to thomas and beckett now maybe nobody will do anything about it or maybe they will. They'll think, well, oh, I'm going to get in good with the king. I'll go kill this guy, Archbishop of Canterbury mm -hmm. back in the Middle Ages. Well, you know, a lot of politicians in their private boudoir, and Trump has no ego filter or anything. <laughs> he just spouts out what he's thinking at the time. It's, it's funny. Uh, most presidents are very reticent, and we don't really know what's on their mind. Right. The, we've seen the good and the bad of the opposite. Trump. Yeah, we just, have seen the opposite for yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And so all these people that would say, oh, this president, that president never holds a press conference, never, you know, we'd have no idea what's on his mind, what he's thinking. With Trump, we kind of know too much of what's on his mind. <laughs> right. It's kind of an interesting TMI, uh, TMI. Exception. exception. <laughs> so anyway, he said something, whether he was saying that this push, that, that bad stuff pushed the whole system in a bad way, or whether he was saying this or other things were so egregious that the normal constitutional procedures ought to not be followed. Certainly, you don't go suspending the Constitution over this. You try and yeah, work please. within the Constitution no, that's right. to address the problems. Yeah. So, so let's talk briefly. Uh, we're kind of running short on our time here, but let's talk briefly about some other big money, uh, big politics uh, issues, uh, particularly around the collapse of the crypto exchange created yeah. by Sam Bankman-Fried. What's yeah, going on there? A lot of funny, is, lot of funny things. Well, so he... <laughs> <laughs> he personally gave uh, $40 million to Democratic congressional candidates. And uh, that's a lot, by the way. That's a, a whole single lot. donor. And so he was very close to lots of, you know, he has lots of 
pictures. If you're in, traveling in donor circles, I, I have zillions of pictures of me with politicians. Not that I give very much money, but I <laughs> hang out around those circles. You anyway, have big ideas, not big money. <clears throat> that's right. I'm an idea man. But, uh, and so the donors like to talk to me too. But anyway, uh, so he was a big donor, and this company that was kind of a Ponzi scheme, uh, and, he, and he had an attached research arm that was also acting as a kind of bank, and it was a very peculiar Rube Goldberg operation. He didn't really know where the money was. The people would have come in to manage the bankruptcies they had never seen a more disorganized company ever. Thousands of people have lost who, millions of dollars each. That's right, that's right. But I think it's just best understood as a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, the, one of the fascinating things is he was a pal of Maxine Waters, who is the head of the Senate Financial Services, uh, House. the House Senate Financial, the House Financial Services Committee. Right. And so, you know, this is exactly the area of jurisdiction for that committee. And normally, you would subpoena the person right away. Okay, yeah. come in. We want to talk to you right now. <clears throat> and you'd even think the Democrats are kind of lame duck in the House right now. They'd want to get in there and, while they have control, do it their way before the Republicans take over and do it the way the Democrats don't want it done. But she won't issue a subpoena to him. She says, well, wow. we urge him to come. Wow. Now, it's, very, it's more interesting than this. So her husband is a former U.S. ambassador to the Bahamas. And oh, is that's very, where Bankman Fried is hanging out. That's right. <clears throat> and so there's an important Bahamas politician named Allison Maynard Gibson. This is a female, lawyer, was a lawyer also for uh, the, the, the crypto exchange and FTX. The, the lawyer's daughter was the director for social responsibility for FTX. Ah. Waters' husband, this ambassador, and Waters herself have stayed in Allison Maynard Gibson's home. Oh my. So Waters, who not only wants to uh, not have to give a subpoena to him, to Sam Bankman-Fried, but she's entangled with the sleazy Bahamas politics that Waters herself is <laughs> entangled in. So I think the, the, the lesson or the point of re recounting this is that we see a kind of Progressivism. So, so Waters is very left-wing. She's one of the right. most progressive members of Congress. If I'm, in a sense, trying to superimpose rationality on her because she's kind of <laughs> says some unexpected, strange things. She sure does. Time. But anyway, if you can give her coherence, she's very left-wing. So here we have progressivism, but it amounts in practice to uh, cronyism to picking favorites and protecting them and giving them special privileges. So I think that's a kind of a lesson to how it this is, is emerging. And, 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 and the news media is also kind of still lionizing the guy. It's, it's, it's sort strange, of amazing. It's yeah. strange, yeah. I mean, he, he apparently um, made much of what was his philosophy? He called it effective altruism or effective right. 
philanthropy, something like that. Effective and he said, altruism. Effective altruism, yeah. And he said in some of the uh, comments initially after this big Ponzi scheme broke up, he admitted that he and others like him would just mouth what he right. called shibboleths of exactly. social yeah. justice, such as climate change and whatnot, right. because right. everybody would go along with them if they mouthed the shibboleths. And, and it would be a <laughs> smokescreen so that he was somewhat immunized from right. people looking into him. Oh, he's a good guy. He's a good but guy I, because I he supports international governmental action in response to right. climate change or whatever. Right. <clears throat> and no, no, that in particular, that was one of his biggest causes. I do, I do think, so effective altruism is not, is not original with him by any means, no, the no. idea. And I don't, I don't think it's in principle a bad idea. Now, obviously- Well, the concept is good. <clears throat> right, because many people give money in ways that are counterproductive or right. mm -hmm. ineffective or however you want to look at it. I think it's good to look into if you're being philanthropic, if you're being uh, beneficial to help other people, to look into what are the effects likely to be. Now, of course, just like social planning, you can't really predict this, but I mean, I think it's worthwhile to look into it. But anyway, it, it provided a smokescreen for him and it provided him with a talking point and I just, he was an amazing con man. I think that's how we amazing, have to really leave yeah. it. <laughs> it's kind of stunning because, it, you know, it has a lot of the characters of other great busts in the history yeah. of American business. Right. And, and yet, um, he's not being, uh, you know, <clears throat> deprecated the way the horrible robber barons were or whatever. He's not, given the Sam, he's not giving this, getting the Sam Insult treatment. No, he's, he's getting a kind of a pass in terms that's of the, right. the coverage. And it just, it doesn't seem right. Well, so, Bill, uh, in a last segment here, I think you want to shed a little light, or could, uh, on what's happening with your negotiations with Ukraine. Um, is there yeah. any possibility that this conflict can be ended through negotiation, or do we have to keep pushing until all-out conflict? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think in the short run, they're not going to resolve it through negotiation. So the interesting thing that happened since we last talked to our viewers here was uh, President Macron of France uh, went and met with various people and said that in order to end this, in order to come to peace terms, there needs to be a strategic architecture, a f look to the future in this region. And he said, Ukrainians understandably want protections of various sorts but also Russia has security interests. And Macron was sort of saying, this is not just a whim of Vladimir Putin, this is the Russian state having interests in this area historically, and that any peace, you know, his, his, his aide, his spokesperson said, look, Russia's gonna be around, whatever. And so some, some terms of peace have to address Russia's security interests. That's so right. That some mm -hmm. that were enumerated were weapons right next door. In other words, like one of the supposed boogeymen was that maybe Sevastopol, which was, is in the Crimea and had been part of Ukraine until Russia took it over in 2014. But what if that had been turned into a NATO base? You know, or what if right. NATO mm -hmm. had missile launchers all along the Russian border? Now, 
in truth, you don't need to have them by the border. I mean, we, right, right. when we had the human missile crisis and we were saying, oh, we were much worse threatened, but the Russians, I mean, it's, you can be, in those days, you could be more accurate with a land-based missile than from a submarine. But the Russians could have had tons of submarines off the U.S. coast without, based in Cuba, and presumably they today have a missile bearing submarines off our coast. So, but anyway, it looks bad to the Russians to have right. NATO, which is already in the <coughs> Balkans and in, you know, it's in Poland and it might go into Georgia. And so the, 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 the point that Macron was making was this needs to be addressed. And maybe we're not gonna make everybody happy, but at least we might make some progress. And that might be a way to bring the peace. But immediately, the Ukrainians said no. Uh, the only person who needs uh, security protection is us. We'd like, if it were mm. up to us, we'd rather see Russia disarmed. The whole Russian leadership should be given Nuremberg war crimes trials. Wow. And uh, no, they, they, I'm not making this up. That's exactly what they said. I know. And uh, so the only <clears throat> strategic protection that's needed is to guard against further aggression from Russia. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding where they're coming from. Both sides think that further military action can help them in their cause. Uh, the Russians complain that the U.S., the U.S. said, well, you know, what is Russia doing to try to come to some modus vivendi here? And the Russians said, well, we don't want to even hear from the Americans because mm -hmm. they won't recognize our incorporation of these uh, eastern Ukrainian territories, Khorasan, mm -hmm. Donuts, so forth. And, of course, the point of the U.S. is that we don't think that, that Russia is entitled to have those. Now... Ludwig von Mises, were we able to bring him back from the dead? He, after all, was born in Ukraine. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Lemberg. It was called Lemberg, but now mm. it's Lviv. So anyway, uh, he would have argued that they should have had, long ago, they should have had impartial plebiscites in each little village in eastern Ukraine. The way they had in Mamel. Do you want to be part of Russia or do you want to be part of Lithuania? <coughs> at the end of World War One, <clears throat> The Russians and Ukrainians should have done that. And then they, they could have settled this. They might still have had a war, but it would have been, it would have looked completely different uh, for, let's say, Ukraine to be invading a village that Russia, that wanted to be in Russia, or Russia to be invading a village that wanted to be in Ukraine. And had it clearly said so under a UN plebiscite or something <coughs> like that. And, not, and it was very, we could still try and do it today, but it would be difficult because so many people have fled. These <coughs> areas are now very depopulated. And in some cases, the Russians actually deported <coughs> residents yes. from the ground in deeper yes. into Russia. <coughs> they have. And children who may not be that easy to find. So you're saying Mises would have recommended uh, yeah. a vote to which country you want to be in. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> and I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and there's other, there was a, a Russian international relations guy that argued for that at the time <coughs> of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm. 
there are some classical liberals today that are still arguing that that's the way <coughs> to address this. Uh, even our uh, Ivan Eland has now written something. He has, this. yes, indeed, right. So uh, I, <coughs> I don't know if we still have time, but I wanted to tell one horrifying anecdote from education world where I... Okay. <laughs> we'll give you the last word today, Bill. Okay. Thank you, sir. Uh, so it looks like the California State University <coughs> System, which for six years has been contemplating the idea of saying that high school students should take four years of math or science before they try and go to State University in California, they're going to back away from this because it's racist to expect that kids will take four years of math or science. Now, it's interesting, this is, you know, in a sense this is ridiculous because even when they were talking about doing this, they were saying, well, let's have these cinch classes, these fake, not difficult classes that count for this. <laughs> or they were Easy reassuring, <laughs> they were reassure, reassuring people, oh, this can be physics for babies or whatever it is. And the, but the, the key thing, so, uh, so Zaev Vorman and I wrote a column in 2019 for Independent Institute. It was published in the Orange County Register. And we pointed out that the real thing was not this four years thing. The real thing was that they have stopped giving people placement exams when they come in. They don't say, okay, how much math do you really know? You don't know enough. You got to go into mediation. They've stopped doing that. So the four-year thing was kind of actually a kind of fallback to disguise right. that they you were giving. You could hide behind that a lot better. Yeah, but now they're not even hiding behind that. So once again, the world <laughs> is going to hell in a handbasket, but it's the Christmas season. So I wish all our <laughs> listeners the very merriest Christmas season. We do um, very much so, and a happy Hanukkah and. <clears throat> Wonderful holidays to you all. And uh, yeah. if you want some more uh, in-depth analysis of some of these and other issues, as always, I invite our friends to go to independent.org online, and you'll find a lot of serious investigation of these things uh, that takes the evidence seriously and that has a big concern for individual liberty. That's the hallmark of our work. Please do visit us at independent.org. Thank you, Bill Evers, for joining us today. Thank you, Graham. And thanks to all of our friends. We'll see you next time on Independent Outlook. Take care.